This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Thinks Canary. Imagine for a moment, there's an intruder in your network. Maybe they're a red teamer, a malicious insider, or an advanced attacker. They have circumvented your traditional defenses and evaded your most experienced analysts. They believe it's game over for you, your network, and your business. But they find something alluring, too tempting to pass up. Maybe it looks like a Windows file share, a mainframe, a router, or a critical piece of SCADA equipment. Upon accessing what they think is a critical asset, a single high-fidelity alert goes to your team. The attacker has just tripped a Thinks Canary. You can have a Thinks Canary set up in under four minutes, and that's it. Just leave it lying in wait, no ongoing maintenance, and only alerts when there's actually something to investigate. No matter what continent you live on, you are in good company, as there are high-performing security teams on all seven continents that are using Thinks Canaries. These canaries are so effective, Thinks has a love page on their website displaying dozens of real messages from people I know and respect in our industry. Get a no BS quote and learn more about this detection best practice at canary.tools. And when you speak to them, let them know the Hacker Valley sent you. In this episode, we chat with the founder of Thinks, Haroon Mir. We talk about the origins of deception technology and how his technology is changing the way companies around the world are doing detection. And with that, let's get right to it. What's going on, everybody? You're in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Along with a special guest, we have Haroon Mir. He is the founder and researcher at Thinks. Uh, Haroon, it's a true pleasure to have someone with such a distinguished background in red teaming, understanding security solutions. But most importantly, welcome to the show. Ah, oh, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Haroon, we were just having such a, a good conversation before the podcast. Such an interesting character for sure. Would love to hear more about your background and what you're doing today. So for background, mainly what you'll get is that I'm old. <laughs> yeah, it's something you can't get away from. So so uh, I started off doing like regular technology stuff. So system engineering, uh, Unix system administration, programming sort of stuff straight out of university. And in 2000, I was part of a small South African pen testing company called SensePost. And we ran SensePost for about 10 years, but we were really lucky because the industry was really young, like in the early 2000s. And, and mainly it means that standards were lower. And, and I, I only say that half joking, like because it was such a new field, we had two advantages, right? The one is nobody could really say they were doing this longer than us. Like everyone was making stuff up as they went along. And, and so you could have these pretty young kids um, pushing the envelope a little bit and doing cool stuff. And, and we kind of made a name for ourselves with pen testing and security research. And, and mainly we did that, like we did lots of talks, we contributed to books. Like we spent all our time just breaking into stuff and figuring out new ways to break into stuff. And so we did that for like 10 years. And I think during that 10 years, we spoke at 
every Black Hat DEFCON there was during that period because like we kept trying to figure out new ways to do things. And in 2010, I stopped wanting to do that so much. And, and mainly I wanted to stop doing it because you start to get to realize that you're not breaking into everything because you're clever. You're breaking into everything because everything's terrible. And and there's there's kind of a like like it's really fun. You can keep breaking into stuff, or you can start figuring out how to do something a little more permanent. I, I say to some of my really clever friends, like like in in offense, you get to do really cool stuff and you get really frequent dopamine hits, right? Because every time you go out, you're breaking something new and and there's a rush and and that works. But but in another way, you kind of always drawing in the margins of other people's work like like you do really clever stuff and you build really clever hacks but but there's very little permanence because what you're doing is a hack to get around a thing currently and that thing gets fixed and then you've got to figure out new hacks which is totally cool it's it's totally fun but but there was a point where i said well can we use that sort of hackiness for defense for for blue teaming and and so at that point we i broke away and started a company called thinkst and and the idea was that we'd see if we could use offensive thinking to build defensive products and in 2015 uh we released a product called canary which is a modern take on honeypots and today that's all we do is we do uh, honeypots and detection that really works without the suck. Like like our official line is detection that doesn't suck. Our unofficial line. <laughs> um, but that's what we're going for. Wow. So you do all sorts of canaries. What, how, how did you even get to that point? Was this a, a completely new concept at, that, at no. that juncture? Or is this something that has been done before and you guys just took it to the next level? No, it's a super good question. So so I, I think honeypots have a bit of a bad rap. Like and and part of the bad rap is just unfortunate. So so in the early two thousands, the guys from the HoneyNet project, Lance Spitzner, just about everyone who was uh, a good guy in the early two thousands was part of the HoneyNet project. So Fyodor from Nmap or Rainforest Puppy or Lance Spitzner, um, and and they put out really interesting papers uh, in a series called Know Your Enemy. But, but what's interesting is they they pitched honeypots as a sort of hacker anthropology, which is you can know about attackers, like understand these strange creatures by setting up honeypots and learning what they do. And, and so the whole use of honeypots became kind of pigeonholed as a way to understand attackers. And of course, as InfoSec commercialized and became serious, nobody's got the time to sit down and play study or hacker like like that stuff just became relegated to academic projects and we think something's seriously being missed in it because we think they great if used for internal detection so so the way we use our canaries and our canary tokens are primarily on internal networks and and we do a few things differently but but we aim pretty squarely at can we detect badness on your network without you having to do a, a bunch of work? So, so when we restarted it, uh, or when we started working on Canary in late 2014, 2015, 
there were a few people who started playing with deception, like deception became a category. But, but we think uh, some of that stuff is wrong-minded. At, at this point, there's, there's not a lot of people kind of aiming honeypots where we are. This sounds like a, a problem that has probably existed well before you found your, your company, Thinkst, and before you provided these the technology to do canaries and, and honeypots. What's the, what's the underlying problem? Is the underlying problem that software is vulnerable? Is it security solutions aren't performing as they should? What, what's your take on it? Yeah, it's a super good question. I, I think the, one of the main things that we solve for is that uh, solutions are too complex. So, so ignoring the specifics of, of what we solve, like, like I think today people have gotten into a position where networks are too complex and solutions are too complex. And what it means is that people can do a lot of stuff without shifting the needle. So, so you see these huge megacorps getting breached and they've spent millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions on security. And they still don't know when they breached for months and sometimes years. And, and, we believe the problem is that everything's so complex that security teams can be validly busy but not achieve what they need to. And, and so with Canary and with Canary tokens, like, like our central company mantra is, is to make stuff that's useful to the org literally minutes after you buy it. Because what you'll see is lots of times there's these really complex solutions like doing really smart stuff and it's only valuable after you've invested huge amounts of time into it. So you see companies put out a press release to say, we've just spent N million on product X. And then you see the same company months later going through a massive breach. And then there's this kind of shuffling of feet, right? Because the, the CISO has to explain what went wrong. And the vendor who a few months ago had a press release now has to say, like, we gave them the warning and they didn't really see the alert and they configured it in pass-through mode. And, and for a long time, security vendors have gotten away because you basically get to say, we were perfect, they used us wrong. And, and instead, what we've focused very heavily on is users should use us right or it's our fault. And, and so we kind of shape our product as you buy us, four minutes later, we're useful for you, and we don't get to hide behind that fig leaf. When I think about canaries, like I think about this, this song and dance deception, and I think about psychology, because if, if we had fake banks all around the world where, you know, robbers could go in, and they pop into a bank, they're like, oh, I'm going to rob this bank, but the bank's fake. Right. You know, that would be such a, a huge undertaking. How much work actually goes into the psychology of the attacker? Like, what would they be interested in? And, and what does that, that research look like? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. So, so it, there's, there's two ways to answer it. I, I think there are people who get really, really deep on, on actually making the deception happen. And, and like in our product, we spend a lot of time making sure that like if we claim to be a Cisco, like we'll take that to the nth degree. So the product will look like a Cisco on the stack level and look like a Cisco with the services. But, but it's one of those cases where I think security defenders overthink things a little. And, and it's interesting because I'm actually going to talk uh, for change about lowering the bar. 
when when everyone spends a lot of time in security talking about raising the bar and and so I think there's two things and, and I want to make sure I hit them both. The, the one is the interestingness of when you actually using deception, what that does to attackers and it's devastating, right? Because if an attacker finds out that, that you're running some sort of deception on your network, now he's not helped by that knowledge. He's actually hindered. Um, we've seen pen testers and, and security uh, testers, red teamers actually talk about the fact that, now when they're on a network and they find credentials, they don't know if they can use it anymore. And, and so validly, the, the sort of stuff that would have got your network owned in the past, like someone finds a username and password list, now an attacker finds it and is going, wait, that was too easy. Is this a trick? And, mm. and so even without really being you, you end up slowing them down and adding pain to them. But I think a mistake that the industry has made is we focus entirely on making that deception ridiculously believable. And and this sounds like a really stupid thing to say when you consider that I'm saying we spend a lot of time making our deception believable. But I'll tell you why I say it. Like, like I think the security industry has this problem of, of making perfect the enemy of good enough. And, and so, for example, if, if you take the history of honeypots again, you'll find there was a time uh, way back where when honeypots were hot technology, like in the mid-2000s or early 2000s, and people will invent a way to, to deceive attackers. And then other people will do a talk on how this deception can be avoided. And as soon as people discover a way that it can be avoided, defenders would throw that technology out and say, well, this can be detected. When in actual fact, most attackers aren't checking for that detection at all. And, and so one of the key examples I give, because, because it's, it's such a good case study for it, is, um, again, early 2000s, people gave this talk on, on how you could effectively rootkit your own machines so that when an attacker landed on it, you could tell what the system calls badness was happening and you could send off alerts. And, and shortly thereafter, at Cansec West, someone else gave a talk on how if you on a host, you can do these complex system call timings so that you could tell if your underlying OS was actually doing something like recording your keystrokes. And so with that talk, people kind of threw away that detection, saying, well, now you can detect if you've got Sebek running under you. But of course, if you take like some of the biggest breaches uh, that we've gotten accustomed to to talking about, like take Sony, take Equifax, take take Snowden rampaging through the NSA, at no point did any of those attackers go, I'm on this box, let me time system calls to see if this host is actually recording my keystrokes. Like literally, those guys went, ooh, an open share, let me steal the files. And, and so I think the industry does this dangerous thing where we want perfect results, but actually good enough results that are well thought about will, will leave us in a much better place than we are. I would love to hear about some of your research findings just by introducing this technology to organizations. What have been some of the uh, kind of side effect findings for for things and and the, the the organizations that you work with 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. So so we find like we catch pen testers and red teamers pretty routinely. So so there's nothing particularly interesting there. Like red teamers get hurt. The the interesting side effect or, or the interesting thing to note there is how little effort it takes to make a dent in that stuff. Jeff Belknap, who used to be the CISO of Slack, um, has commented repeatedly to say, like, like you can take a solution that take, costs a few thousand dollars and wreck 100K pen tests. Because, again, like, like we've kind of gotten accustomed to thinking it's a complicated problem, there's expensive solutions, and so anything good must be really expensive. And part of the logic there is that's just not true. Like, like sometimes cheap and simple will will do just as well for you. We find a bunch of things that that are good and not so good, but but probably amongst the not so good things that are surprising is is just finding out how many company networks still spray around credentials. Like it's twenty twenty, the year of our Lord, and and on most company networks, if you just stand up a listener and listen on port 22, at some point, something will try to log into you and give you creds, stand up and listen on, on a Windows port, and some Windows box will try to authenticate with you. Internal networks, despite the push from, from Google and, and many people talking zero trust, most corporate networks are still shooting fish in a barrel. What would you say at this point has been your most proud moment? From you know building this company to the technology you've created, like what are, what are you most proud of? Uh, that's such a good question. So I think there's a mix. Like like on our webpage, we create a, a section called forward slash love. So canary.tools forward slash love, and and one of the things I think that make me happiest is slash love because it's completely unsolicited people on the internet just saying good things about when Canary worked for them. And and you'll see some of the stuff which is just like, wow, this looks cool or this is nice. But but the really interesting tweets are people who just say something short, like if you're asking if it works, it does. And and you know the story behind a tweet like that is that Canary just saved someone um from from the worst two months of their life. And and so that's been really great. But, but there's another thing which, interestingly, we don't often talk about, or I don't think we've ever talked about. And, and that's like, like we've kind of built Canary. So, so we bootstrapped Canary and built it completely on our own, right? And from relatively small company, we've got a pretty good reach now. But, but it also means we get to do things in the industry that we always wanted to do that somehow don't happen. So so we get to sponsor OpenBSD because we've used OpenSSH forever, or we get to sponsor Twisted Python, or we get to sponsor Usenix. And like last year, we, we started forming like a things.org uh, in South Africa where we can like contribute to local charities and, and start up like a local bursary scheme. And And like on the one hand, those things are, like if you traditionally talk to a, uh, VC-backed companies, they'll tell you to keep your eye on the prize. But but we're able to build a kind of a culture that says that as a company, we can do well by doing good. And and so you end up having the space for, for being good community members, like being good in our local community, being good as a internet community member. And and 
it, it ends up having a really interesting positive loop, which is you do nice things, people like you for that, it then forces you to do nice things. So, so at this point, even if somebody tried to say, well, now it's time to knuckle down and you should just monetize this, like it would be a bad business decision. Like, like the goodwill that we get from being good internet citizens actually pays off in spades. Um, for that, like, like we are a small company in terms of non-technical people, right? Like the whole company is, is relatively small. We've got one person who heads up sales. So not a fleet of salespeople. There's like one guy. And and with that, our our product reach, like like we're on literally all seven continents. Like we've got almost every big name that that you can think of is currently using Canary. And and in part, all of that stuff comes from a combination of people saying good things about us and us being good internet citizens. And 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 so partly what I'm I'm really proud of is getting the chance to be a part of that. Like, like you get a chance to, to do it right, and it seems to be working for us so far. I love to hear that. I think that not only the world, but cybersecurity is a positive-sum game where the more that we contribute to ourselves and also to others and the technology out there, the better everything gets, the more opportunities that everything opens up to. I would love to hear some of the ideas that you have for breaking into cybersecurity. A lot of the questions that we get from potential mentees and people that are just uh, more curious about cybersecurity is, how do I get started? With all of your experience and knowledge that you have today, if you were to give yourself some advice starting into cybersecurity today, what would be a few things, a few words of wisdom that you would give yourself. That that's a super good layup. Um, mainly because, like, fairly recently, I gave a keynote at B sides in in Doha, Qatar, and and it was almost the all of my pitch, which was why we should make more stuff. And and I'm very heavily biased towards uh, creating things. And and so I say this even for young people or, or new entrants to the to the space. Creating things just puts you in a positive space, and and sometimes you feel a little bit at a loose end because there's these people doing massively complex stuff, massively massaging OS internal heaps and memory allocators. And and what I'd absolutely suggest is that you just start creating. And, and by creating, I mean, start a blog, write a post on how you used SSH tunnels to connect to your home network, and, and then write a post on how you use your a cron job to wipe all your bash history, like, like really little things, but just create. And, and what you'll find is, is a bunch of things, but, but one is you start to create this body of knowledge that over time people start to build on. Someone will go, hey, I did this, and did you know this thing, and this stuff happens. And, and one of the biggest uh, mistakes I see in, in InfoSec is where people end up being consumers instead of creators. And, and I think there's huge, huge value in just creating stuff. Like if there's one thing that, that, that I'm big on, it's, it's that people should make more stuff. And that's that's writing, that's 
that's any type of learning that way. Let's say you have somebody like that and they, they're, they're writing, they're doing research, but let's say now they want to create a technology. They want to create something that's going to help at scale some problem in cybersecurity. Right. But they're, they feel like they're up against all these companies that have budgets and people and engineers. What, would, what advice would you give to them in order to create this, this vision that they have in their mind? That's super, that's super cool also. So, so a, a big thing that I'll push for or, or that, that I almost want everyone to know is that the, the world has massively changed. And, and 10, 15 years ago, like you were pretty out of luck. Like, like there were all these very accepted truths that say like your technology doesn't matter. Like it's not what you know, it's who you know. And you could build the best thing, but if you don't market it right, or if you don't get in corporate execs, or if you don't get in this massive sales team, like it's never going to work for you. And there's never been a time when that has been less true. Like, like you can literally sit at home as a one-man dev team and make a product that you can very easily live off. And, and that's not to say that it's easy. It's just that it's possible, where previously it wasn't. And, and you're starting to get to the place now where a small team that builds something that's useful can really run against mega corps that are mega funded. If I just... Take our example, like like I mentioned that when, when we started, and, and when I say we, originally, like there were three of us working on Canary when we launched version one. And when we started, like there were a bunch of deception players who went out and raised a whole bunch of money. And, and most of them raised between $30 million and $60 million. And in the short term, we were a little bit worried because these folks went out and they were getting TechCrunch headlines and people were covering them as the hot new technology that were going to take over the world. And we didn't have a booth at RSA, but when I went to RSA, these folks had massive multi-hundred K booths. And I thought, whoa, how do we compete with them? And what we did is we built a product that we genuinely thought worked and we found one customer and we kept iterating to make it better. And those early customers used us and liked us and said nice things about us. And so other customers tried us. And three years into it, still with no funding, um, we've got more customers than all those deception players put together. And and mm. I, I don't mean that lightly. I mean it literally, like, like you add up all their customers and we've got more. And And so I think the market today is kind of ready already here for for good solutions that are sold bottom up in companies like like we've been prepared for it by slack and by github where slack and github didn't roll up to a company with a team of sales guys and do massive sales into the it department they were kind of useful products and engineers pull them in by paying on their credit card and after a while, there's still significant sums uh, being handed over, but, but it's not the old traditional sales model where strippers and stakes uh, were why your software sold. Like you can get in now with good bottoms up sales. 
I, I agree. It's it's pretty it's pretty impressive and surprising to see all how how much technology can en- enable you, especially with some of the DevOps tools now that you can leverage just to quickly get started up with really any project. Right. It's 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 an interesting model for sure, and and one that I think will be fundamentally better for end users because it, there's just less room to hide. Like like a lot of bad software was hiding in these opaque processes because you kind of just used what the enterprise had, and and now there's this like to to join the term like there's this consumerization of IT where people expect their product to be like their iPhone or like their Mac. And yeah, vendors uh, have to up their game. I would love to hear where where are you going next? You're at Thinks, you found a great company. Where does Haroon go from here? <laughs> That's also an interesting question. In, in honesty, uh, right now, like like it sounds trite, but we're enjoying the ride. Like, like we're enjoying making stuff that people like. We get to be a little more ambitious. So, so back in the early 2000s, every security company knew that you could have a security research team, for example. And, and almost everyone used it purely for marketing, right? So, so you'd have uh, Bindview selling stuff and Bindview will have the Razor team. Or you'd have ISS and ISS would have X-Force. And lots of these people were doing security research, but they were almost completely unrelated to the products the company was making. It it was literally marketing spend. And we feel that stuff can be done better. So so for example, we we originally were pure research company, like we've done lots of research and talks. And what we're now starting to do now that we've got money and we've got space for it is we're starting to push out research into interesting spaces like, hey, here's a problem that really should be addressed or here's more work that should be done in this area. So so on the one hand, we're excited about having more latitude to do what we think are more good things for the industry. And again, we're not completely altruistic. We see that stuff coming back to us in terms of making better products or making better decisions or helping the industry. And, and so we're pretty excited about, about that. In, in general, uh, what we're looking at is effectively growing. So not necessarily with headcount, but, but being able to be more ambitious with the stuff that we do, because we think fundamentally it'll give us bigger reach and hopefully make bigger impact. Well, Arun, you got two guys in your corner right here. Thank you so much for hopping on to the podcast with us today. For folks that want to keep up to date with what you have going on with you personally and also for the company, uh, what are some ways that people can stay in touch? Uh, It's been a pleasure. So on Twitter, I am uh, Harun Mir. And most of our company tweeting is from at Thinkstcanary. And Twitter will normally be where we're chatting. We're online at canary.tools, which is our website. And other than that, yeah, ping me anytime. My DMs are open on Twitter. At me to let me know why I'm an idiot. I'll happily respond. (laughs) Love that. Awesome, Haroon. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We'll be sure to drop all of the information in our show notes, and we'll see everybody next time.